Welcome back to the It Depends podcast. Today we are here for the second part of our mock-up series, moving from mock-ups to reality. As always, check us out on Twitter at ClearFunction, hashtag It Depends. Ask questions, give us comments, we'd love to hear from you. Today I am here with Ben Robin. Hello, Daniel. And Brian Lankford. Hello again. And Jesse Brown. Hey. I'm Daniel Pritchett, and Ben has a sweet outline for this podcast, starting with... uh, Front end versus back end. So take it away, Ben. Well, we were talking earlier about, you and I were, Daniel, about, mm-hmm. and we sort of dragged Brian into it. Yeah. Uh, we generally like to have these philosophical conversations at least once a day. Mm. Um, <laughs> but we were talking earlier about how I tend to like front end type of things and you tend to like back end type of things. Uh-huh. And I feel like we sort of together had this joint epiphany of why that might be. And that is that the inherent uh, nature of front end work is that everyone sees it and has an opinion on it. Right. And maybe wants it to be, I think your example was over on this side and green. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whereas no one, you just don't have that with the back end. Yeah. Nobody's going to look at your models or your controllers and talk yeah. about that with you. Yeah, and the type of work we do, your your uh, less technical stakeholders aren't going to be second guessing the, the nitty gritty details of the code. I wouldn't say that's specifically why I like back end so much. I like to tell myself at least that I'm enabling a system to do a thing it couldn't do before. And I guess every feature is that to some extent. But for me, it's like a whole categorical new addition. Like, now it's got email. Now it does text messages. Now it can microwave french fries. Like, all of those are back-end <laughs> integrations, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, and it certainly isn't the case that you don't design on the back-end. There is True. design just as much on the back-end as the front-end. Mm-hmm. That's not the distinction we're making. And that's kind of how we got into that, is discussing what mock-ups might look like for a non-visual design. Like, yeah. we're doing voice design for assistants like uh, Alexa, Google Home, and people always talk about how they do API and humane design for uh, command line tools, and that's hmm. there's a lot of opinions on that. Right. you guys have any history with tools that you had thought had really good command line interfaces or voice interfaces? Uh, I mean, you know, I think the Heroku command line is a great example of one that's easy to use and I don't have to go back to the reference too often, which is, I think is like the number one thing for me for a command line. Yeah. And I'd say one of the negatives is probably just PowerShell in general. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I use PowerShell and not, not infrequently, but I still can't remember anything from PowerShell. Right. <laughs> like it's constantly a battle to learn. It's just so ver- verbose. And so yeah, it is right. very clear when you read something that's documented, you're like, I see what's happening, but try writing it from memory. Mm-hmm. I just can't right. do it. Do you um, think the Heroku, doc, even do, online documentation, is probably a little easier to sit yeah. through and figure out what to do? Yeah, definitely. Like documentation. Yeah. yeah, and like Terraform, they have really good documentation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the Azure command line, it's it's fairly decent. It's uh, they, There's a little more abstraction there than something like Heroku. Heroku's kind of like, I want to mess with this one app. And like, mm-hmm. you know, Heroku and like AWS and Azure sort of like, I'm messing with this region of things that are sort of halfway related. And so yeah. that ends up adding a bunch of context, which means complexity a lot of times. Yeah, that's a good point. So, I was so thinking when you compared Heroku to PowerShell, it's almost unfair because <laughs> Heroku is, has a little is. bit narrower scope than <laughs> yeah. a shell to do all things Windows. Yeah, definitely. But we were just talking, you know, you were just saying about mocking up something that doesn't really have much of a visual front end to it. Mm-hmm. Um I think in a way, if you make your API or your, um, I guess, command line tool discoverable, mm-hmm. like in a way, in a command line kind of yeah. way, like I think with Heroku and most of these tools, you can, you know, do dash help or whatever, and right. it gives you a good, like, it just makes it easier to understand what you're doing. Um, you can mock that up 
you know, yep. for sure when you're right. designing that stuff for sure, to kind of show the interaction that you could have. Oh yeah. And even for things so. that don't really have any sort of front end, just the pure back end stuff, you know, um, help pages of course are one way to document it and kind of help design and see whether it mm -hmm. makes sense instead of just coding. I was thinking Brian mentioned discoverability in a, sort of companion concept there is the principle of least surprise. Right. It's not enough just to have the ability to do help and get all 500 commands. It would really help if the commands had similar syntax and phrasing and <laughs> right. capitalization right. and everything. Right. And regardless of how many people talk about like REST and how awesome it is, it's really hard to get a really good API like that. Like yeah. actually, you know, you can kind of talk about how you're supposed to use the verbs the right way and everything, but mm -hmm. it's still even that, like you run into constant like edge cases where you're like, right. oh, how should I deal with like, you know, performing a function on mm -hmm. my API right. and like you, and then suddenly you're in sort of, uh, I, I would say uncharted, but everyone's yeah. done it, but they all do it a different way. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to justify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In that sort of case, I find it helps to have a, some sort of reference client implementation to point at your API. Like if you're building a, some sort of standardized API, and it's supposed to have, I don't know, paging or specific stuff, having a tool that knows what that stuff looks like and then blows up every time you fail to meet its expectations is useful. Hmm. Right. I'm not quite sure I'd call that mock-ups, but at least it's a way of uh, standardizing yeah. the expectations. Design. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Stripe's a good example of that, right? Well, right. Stripe has a really well-documented API, mm -hmm. and I don't know if they do or not, but they could have easily had like a swagger you know, um, documentation, right. which if you're not familiar with Swagger, it's mm -hmm. kind of just like a definition file for your API that the clients can be generated from. But Stripe doesn't just generate clients. They like hand roll their clients to like, you know, um, to make it feel like the platform that you're working with and mm -hmm. also to make sure that everything makes sense. And so like, yeah, so I don't know. I think that's a pretty good example of someone who's designed kind of all the way, even, even a backend like Stripe, yeah. you know, not mm -hmm. just the APIs. They've went ahead and made the client libraries. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys would agree, but it feels to me like one of the distinctions we're making is that mocking up and designing something is more than just what it looks like, but how we expect you to interact with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of the experience of it yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 I guess that's the distinction between UI UX. Mm -hmm. I've been guilty well. on the front end of uh, having, say, inconsistent color or style choices. <laughs> like you just start building out screens yeah. and you just sketch out, like, this will work. And then later you realize you made three or four different off the cuff choices and <laughs> never went back to. Standardize them again. Yep. Maybe that's just me, but well, there's some benefit to that too, though. Last week we talked about uh, the danger of building the front end first or making a really great mock-up yeah. of the client thinking it's done when it doesn't actually do anything. Sure. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I'd much right. rather have something that does all the things and needs an extra round of polish to sure. standardize yeah. things mm -hmm. than a perfect front end that doesn't do anything. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think designing the back end, uh, you obviously have tools like Visio as mm -hmm. well, right? Um, Visio and whiteboards. That's sort of usually where I start with back-end design, you know. That was uh, sort of my first thought. So thinking about the Alexa example you brought up earlier, Daniel, um, mocking out what do I want it to do when I say X? Yeah. Or how do I want it to respond mm -hmm. kind of thing? And that that's a great use. Yeah, of like the Vizio flow diagrams and stuff like that, you know, all those sorts of uh, things. Sequence diagrams are So great, like to make actually. that even more usable, you might think of other phrases that people might use to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've seen some APIs where like if I hand in first name with a capital F or whatever, or, you know, F name versus first name or mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. um, it'll take both or something like yeah. that. You know, just uh, making that experience, making it where the user or consumer of your API is going to fall into the pit of success rather yeah. than right. constantly having yeah. to figure out what exactly do I have to have right 
to make this work. Yeah, if you can yeah. make it less strict sometimes, then sometimes yeah. that's the mm-hmm. right choice, you know? Like, you obviously need to be strict on, like, currency and amount and things sure, like that. Right. But, like, <laughs> you know, if you can... Uh, if you can be less strict on uh, on things that are you know less important, like email address, email versus email address, right? Well, except both, example. right? Right, right, sure. Or even like a, uh, and this raises some headaches as well, but like a instead of a first name last name field, doing a full name field and splitting it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or if nothing else, at least have good error messages. Error messages are a really good part of any backend implementation that's been designed well. And so if you pass an email, but you really want them to pass an email address then say that in the response back not just don't yeah. just ignore that extra field and then <laughs> oh, they f- yeah. and then they realize that they've never been sending you an email for yeah. 6 mm-hmm. months uh, right. you know and so it's just you know make sure to kind of be strict in that regard like if yeah. you don't understand something don't just be like well i don't need to deal with it like <laughs> yeah. you know try that's, to be good yeah. that's kind of a tough choice one thing i like to think about when i'm building interfaces is to limit myself to as few required elements as possible like, I totally get if email is just non-negotiable, then you have to let them know as early as possible, we needed the email and we didn't get it. But in general, when someone's designing a, a form or a survey, it's really tempting to say all 30 fields in the survey are required, <laughs> and then suddenly nobody fills out the survey but, like, your family and friends, and you wonder why. Right. It's yeah. because you made it hard. There's a concept in API design I've seen a few times, readme-driven development, which sounds pretty cool for a humane api like it's tempting especially for me to to think about what's the big functionality i'm trying to deliver and build it inside out like go find my database or my library and make the stuff happen and then have a crappy uh inconsistent api as an afterthought but if you sit down and say i'm building a library for ruby that does this this and this and then you write down a how-to with a brief description and code snippets for an end user or Mm-hmm. developer consuming your library this is how it's going to work then that helps keep you honest in terms of right. which to way which direction you're building like you know what the, the end goal is yeah that makes sense so i think at this point we've covered about the first half of our outline talking about the differences between front end and back end and then also just different kinds of things we could mock up or design in some way or another what do we do as we move into this next part, we may talk more about screens or pages rather than just models and classes and things like that. But but what do we do when we get the mock-up and we don't get code? So maybe we get a um, just a, a JPEG or even maybe like a Photoshop file, uh, and we're supposed to build this screen in mm-hmm. code itself. Yeah. And we go from there. Yeah, it used to be called slicing. I don't know if they still call <laughs> it slicing yeah, yeah. anymore. We used to just basically get a PSD and you would go in there and just like make layers because a lot of times you would just get, you know, PSD files that are just flat. Like you would just kind of get the output of it and you'd open up in Photoshop and you'd start slicing your images because of course there were gradients back then Mm -hmm. and so you would constantly like basically create gradients like little bitty one pixel by two pixels and then like that would Mm -hmm. be your background Mm -hmm. image that you would stretch across some giant table somewhere. Um, These days they make it a lot easier. I know like the Photoshop online, for instance, if you get like a PSD, like they kind of, come built in with this viewer that you can use on the web to like click different layers and elements and it'll give you like CSS if it knows how to do it, oh, which wow. is kind mm-hmm. of interesting. So that it'll give nice. you like the colors and everything. So you don't have to get out your color picker too often. Mm-hmm. You don't have to uh, figure out what border radius. You don't have to just kind of line those up and, you know, figure out what that is. I, you know, so I think a lot of the tooling has changed around this. You've got yeah. a Zeppelin. Is that one? There's Zeppelin. One. There's yeah. Sketch, of course. And there's... Um, What's the big one? I know there's another. There's InDesign. InDesign. That's another uh, one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you got Photoshop and all those tools output 
CSS these days. So that helps out quite a bit. It's not enough CSS to just drop it in and just go or anything. Yeah, right. And if you're using like like a UI framework or something like, um, you know, like Bootstrap or Foundation, Mm -hmm. sometimes what, you know, what you might do is just take, look at the picture, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of get practical here. Look at the picture that someone's put together as far as a mock-up goes and just apply Foundation's sort of uh, look and feel, you know, the way they... The right, you got to start drawing have. lines on top of this mock-up. You got to right. be like, yeah. okay, this looks like a row to me. This looks like, right. you know, this looks like a column. And, you know, start kind of yeah. breaking it into chunks that ma- that make sense in your world, so yeah. to speak, right? And what? then if you need to customize that look and feel, you can use Foundations. I don't know if they use Less or, or, uh, or SAS to do that. But you can, they make those things to where you can plug in different... Um, variables and stuff yeah. to to slightly tweak the look of it. Um, yeah, and these days CSS has changed quite quite a lot. That you could uh, you could start without those frameworks now if you're targeting kind of sure. newer mm-hmm. browsers. You know, it used to kind of be that you know almost everyone started with some sort of base CSS because there were just so many inconsistencies between the browsers. Like you had to have reset files and and all that stuff now. But they've kind of converged enough where you can kind of just start with a file new CSS thing and with CSS grids and and Flexbox, you can get a lot of what those frameworks give you as far as layout is concerned right. hmm. for pretty much free, but it doesn't solve the, uh, you know, there's a lot of niceness to, to these frameworks. They're not just layout frameworks sure. anymore. Right. So, right. Um, yep. Is there any problem with this auto-generated CSS where once you take it and manually integrate it with your system, you're kind of hosed if the the upstream designer wants to make another pass, do you have to oh, redo yeah. that stuff? Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, that's that's a big part of it is like, you know, if, if you're going to be doing multiple iterations, you kind of don't want to start if you think it's, if it, ha- it doesn't have a, at least some sort of stamp of approval, Yeah, you kind of want to stay away from the implementation side of that. I mean, obviously it can give you kind of an idea of mm-hmm. like what data needs to be on a page or a screen and yeah. you can start working the back end design and start working around that. But yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're not getting output from a designer that is actual like HTML or CSS that you can reliably compare between, yeah. then, uh, it, you know, you got to have a pretty good idea that it's, uh, in the final stages of design, because otherwise you will end up just basically redoing the work completely. Ouch. Mm. Uh, Unless you have excellent separation of concerns in your CSS and HTML. Maybe yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, tool. CSS Grid does make this a lot easier these days. You know, some of this stuff is uh, a lot, yeah, just it makes a lot more sense because that separation is a lot better. But, of course, as now that CSS is finally good, we have things like React and Vue where they tie more closely together, like yeah. the CSS to the component. And right. so, um, yeah. what? So the separation is suddenly not there mm-hmm. anymore. So, uh, which is okay. Yeah, but yeah, it just means that if you, if you broke out to a hundred components for the first design, you're going to be touching those hundred components to fix something. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. This reminded me of at least ten years ago. I was in charge of this one enterprise report. It had about a thousand rows. It said who was who had taken a uh, online training course and who hadn't. And people would call me and tell me that the results were wrong. And I kept notes in a spreadsheet of what was what had changed. And somehow I realized that I had like a list of 50 manual changes I had to make every time I run the report. And I'd, I'd run the report, the data would be wrong, and I'd change it. And eventually I learned to just get them to make the changes upstream in the database so it would be automatically corrected. But right. I don't know if there's a way to, to automatically fix that. I, I could probably spend a week trying to write a JavaScript thing to take the CSS and rewrite it as other CSS so you don't have to think about it, but it may not be worth it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. a uh, 
uh, one trick that I've used a few times when kind of slicing up images, like if you just have a PNG or something, then you can uh, you can set that as the background to the HTML tag mm-hmm. and set the opacity of that background to like 50% or something mm-hmm. so yeah. that you can start actually like designing on top of that's the image that you're, oh, cool. uh, that you're yep. trying to like, you know, replicate. Oh. And so that's, that's, that's a trick that I've used a n- n- number of times and it's, it's nice. And I guess lest we forget where we've come from and how good we have it these days, uh, I was thinking even just earlier about, you know, years ago, <laughs> it was like, get the picture. And my first thought is, all right, how many tables am I going to need to do this thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you used to do layout. Yeah. Uh, table just based layout. Think about how many different rectangles go where <laughs> and how yeah. they yeah. touch. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now you have to think about which component's going to hold the CSS. Yeah. It's just yeah. a whole different way of doing yeah. things. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I still think in rectangles. If somebody sent me an oddly <laughs> shaped thing, I'd be sad. <laughs> yeah well now you've got all the crazy like scroll designs and everything right so when you scroll yeah. like the background's constantly changing and the content's scrolling in and out to yeah. like animate and stuff right. and that that stuff gets wild you know mm-hmm. you know usually you have a designer firm doing a lot of that you know the stuff the stuff we get we do a lot of application development yeah. so a lot of the right. stuff we have is more like we have a listing it needs to export there needs mm-hmm. to be actions on these rows and you know we've got these dashboard graphs that need to look all nice and pretty and stuff right. but yeah. they're not a whole lot of like marketing websites coming our way that need to have be really flashy mm-hmm. to sell That's something true. yeah right i'm Not sure people often. think the same thing about all of my favorite work but <laughs> those fancy sites you described to me often feel like a solution in search for a problem <laughs> like now we know how to make things wiggle around when we scroll down so, so let's, let's think of a that. great way to do that everybody's going to really be happy we did that so what happens if you do get css and html from your designers how do you uh how do you keep it so that you can have upstream changes and, you know, what's kind of a, what's some good practices or bad mm. practices you've kind of seen along the way to help that? I'd probably mm. quarantine it and make them check it in, <laughs> 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 figure out a way to track the diffs mm-hmm. and also figure out how, or if I could allow that code to touch the final product. Like it might be right. one thing to just keep it here and use it as a reference, but to have it sp- slap directly into your, overall app which might be a thousand other files it's kind of probably just depends on your relationship with the the designer too because like if they're if they're just giving you like if they're just kind of dumping all the css to you and yeah you know wiping their hands of it and walking away then you might deal with that a whole lot differently than um right someone on your team that's a really good point team is going to check in changes yeah like i agree you know having it where they can check it in directly might make the most sense. It puts kind of the onus on them to make sure that they do their CSS right. Yeah, I think that's a natural reaction as developers is to (laughs) keep people who aren't actually developing like core business logic out of our repo. I don't know that it's not an unnatural reaction, but it also, it does, you do create yourself more work then, right? Like you're the one who has to do the translation Mm -hmm. from these static mockups continually into your code base. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. So how do y'all feel when sysadmins and DBAs treat you like that? Exactly. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, you know, but at the same time, like getting someone set up to work on this like .NET application and they're like on a Mac, you're like, well, that's yeah. hard. Like now <laughs> they can't do that, right? Like, well, or it's like hard. Ruby or Python and yeah. they're like, you know, I've used Node.js once. And you're uh-huh. like, oh, okay. Well, like, it's just not, you know, how much time are you really saving, yeah. even if they could get in I there mean, and modify stuff? We ran into this not too long ago, but um, what helped us was um, he wrote it all in using SAS. Mm-hmm. And that, 
I think that's helpful because nice. then um, all I have to do is just take his SAS files, stick it. If, if it's two different repos, let's say he has his own mm-hmm. repo and I got my own. Yep. Um, I just take his SAS files and dump them right into uh, ours, and it just regenerates CSS like yeah, that. Yeah, it's great. Right. And I'm done. Um, the markup so, is always the hard part, I find. Yes, right. You know, getting That's the true. CSS from them, I, I never find that to be too bad as long as you're not like, if you're reskinning an existing application, there's a lot of concern right. there, right? Because you're going to have these old CSS files from a decade that still have, still have their function, right? That's mm-hmm. one of the costly things about redoing a website is you never really redo yeah. it. You're really just adding layers on top of it. A lot of the times, and sure. so the, uh, you know, you've got CSS. You can't just like delete the CSS that's there, like because yeah. normally there's going to be some alert box that's really important that happens in some dynamic event on this <laughs> page that no one ever sees. And if it's unstyled, it will be really important that they didn't see it, <laughs> and then and then you'll have a bug, right? Yeah. So a lot of times you build on top of what's there, um, and um, and that can be hard. But mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the HTML translation has always been my like number one like pain point with developers or with designers because they'll change something that seems really simple. They'll be like, oh, and now these inputs have a container. And then right. like suddenly you're like, oh man, that's work. my yeah. 100 pages that all have inputs on them now need a div around them <laughs> right. in order to make this design like look like this. Yeah. And sometimes it can seem really silly. You're like, man, and that's all just so that I can have that border? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like, oh. That what if we is? didn't have the border, right? Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. where pseudo classes <laughs> come in, right? You can tell where the developers really were versus uh-huh. like the designers and like HTML spec. They're like pseudo elements, things yeah. that don't exist that I can create on the fly yes. and style so that I don't have to change the actual markup. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Huh. Have you guys ever used any tools that let you kind of sort of automate the process of Binding the five pages out of a hundred that you broke with your latest CSS change. I've heard of tools that'll do like a screenshot of every page in your app and even try to diff them yep. pixel by pixel. But I've never really, I've only really talked to one person who did that, and mm. she didn't seem to be super happy about it. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen some. I've seen, like you said, I've seen the tools advertised before mm-hmm. to do that sort of thing. I don't have a whole lot of experience using them, but it is interesting to think about. Like basically on a nightly basis, some people have jobs part of their build server mm-hmm. that basically run like Selenium or I guess now it's just automated Chrome Yeah, and they'll take screenshots and then you'll uh, compare them nightly. And if there's a diff that someone didn't expect, then it'll kind of break the build or whatever. So I have a question. Yes. Uh, if we have a mock-up, if I make a mock-up for you guys as a developer, how easy is it for you to, it, do you like using mock-ups um, to do your work? Is it handcuff you too much? Are there, does it bring up, a million other questions mm. uh, about it. I'm just curious from your perspective of actually consuming a mock-up, how's that gone? I think general? yes to all those. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Like it, I really like having mock-ups generally because it comes with a stamp of approval some, from someone who's a little higher up than I am for the project mm. that I'm working on. Yeah. And that's really, that's to me one of the most important things because yeah. if I design it, I get sort of attached to that design and then if it hasn't really gone through the layers of approval to be like, yeah, this seems like a good idea, mm-hmm. then it's more likely to cause me rework. Right. And right. Uh, and also, like I said, if there's like some attachment to like, this design's the most efficient design ever, but it's ugly, then like, <laughs> you know, it's going to get changed and I'm going to be annoyed because I'm like, this is definitely the best design ever. <laughs> right. and, yeah. uh, and so, you know, I like yeah. I like that part of uh, having a mock-up for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's so fast and the code is clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will yeah. say, just to plus one what Jesse said, the whole value prop of the last episode we did of avoiding rework, having some of those conversations earlier on so that we talk about things we may not have thought of mm-hmm. with, if we have the mock-up. That, that is a great reason to have it. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and I don't know if this... So that's one reason. The second reason, I don't know if this is just my personality, 
But I find it really hard to start from a blank page Mm -hmm. and try to get to something meaningful. So to have a mock-up as a starting point is really helpful. And I feel like the number one rule of mock-ups is that they aren't reality. So Mm -hmm. I shouldn't think of it as a straitjacket. I should think of it as kind of like we say a story is a placeholder for a Mm -hmm. conversation, although we've already had a lot more conversation on the front end of a mock-up. Right. Right. Yeah. Brian said something last on the last episode to that effect that it I think he was saying you should want keep your mock ups as low fidelity as possible. Like don't over specify, don't add any extra feature that somebody might take as mm-hmm. necessary because mm-hmm. then you really are handcuffing yourself. Right. And I really like what Ben said about reserving the right to to change direction and change the story. Absolutely. It can be hard depending right. on who's your client, how often you talk to them, what sort of contractual certainties are in place, but in general, I find people are happier and better off if it's always possible to uh, renegotiate a story midstream. Yeah. Like, this was right. a good idea at the time. Recent evidence suggests maybe we shouldn't keep going down this path for another <laughs> week. Yep. To call out kind of an important thing that Ben was saying, like, you know, not being hamstrung with the mock-ups. Part of that is also that the mock-ups kind of come with more than just, this is what this page should look like. Like, I find the best design companies give out the like patterns and practices for an application. Yeah. So we're not talking about a marketing site when we're kind of talking about having this, but a kitchen sink yeah. of like components that you can reuse wherever in the app. Like it's yeah. great that they design this one page that is the most used page of your web application. Maybe it's a dashboard and everything. And it's, it's great that you want it to look as close to that as possible and mm-hmm. that's fine. But as soon as things change, you've got to have the patterns in place to allow those changes at the development level where you're like, man, we really need this to do something else. And like being like, Oh, we have to go back to the designer to get Start like, over, to right? get, yeah, exactly. You yeah. don't want to be like, Oh, I don't know how modal should look. And mm-hmm. then our modal that we threw up is really ugly. Like you kind of want, you know, you, you really want patterns and practices. Yeah. You want all your inputs to look the same way and validation right. messages. Cause if they don't think about that, then you're going to have to think about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it's suddenly going to be like, you made this design really ugly. It's <laughs> like, well, it's not my fault. There was no design for this. Yeah, yeah. I like right. the idea of a kitchen sink. I've seen that repeatedly with UI toolkits. I've been, I have a little kitchen sink file of my own for this book I'm writing. It uses a, a proprietary publishing tool chain, and there's like sidebars and footnotes and inline images and stuff. And hmm. every time an editor tells me I should have used that thing, I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't even know that existed. So I got to read the docs on it, and then it never quite works the way I expect the first time. So once I get it to work once. Add it to my kitchen sink file. So now I have a new tool in my toolbox. Right. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, what was the last thing you said? You said, does it hamstring you? Does yeah, it, do I you like th- it? And then... I can't remember now. I think what, one of the thoughts I had was as a developer coming in and working on a mock-up that I didn't mm-hmm. put together, um, I think the only thing, downside that I potentially run into is things like they hadn't thought it through right. all yep, the way. Right. Like, it's a great-looking mock-up, but they didn't realize that actually to create this data, you have to do these 500 other steps over here. And they're thinking it's just one step. It's just not that simple. So I don't know, like, I'm kind of curious what you guys think about. Yeah, mock-ups versus reality. I mean, that's a a constant battle that I think anyone who's ever received mock-ups runs into. Because unless unless you're the dev who made the mock-up, and you were the, also the one who built the page, it's almost certain that there's going to be some sort of mismatch. And, right. and I think that's fine as long as you know how to like deal with it, right? right. It's mm-hmm. something that's going to happen. You know, I've seen it happen a lot with like filters on like listing pages where they're like, yeah, we want to filter by this status. And then it's like, well, that status is not really a status. Like, right. You know, mm-hmm. somewhere it's... it was something simple in your mind, but in our mind, that's like 
you know, three pages of sequels somehow. So yeah. You're like, I don't, I'm sorry, man. I don't know what to tell you, but that can't uh-huh. happen, you know? Right. Um, not without a new a, database server. It's probably server. not as big a deal on Greenfield projects, but like especially existing code base or, you know, data, you know, database right. back right. end or mm-hmm. whatever. It just seems like that And you kind of, yeah, if there's a normalized database under the covers, then there's going to be some mismatch between things that make sense to end users and things that actually got encoded in the schema. Yeah, right. I will say that, it can be a little bit of a letdown if your if your mockups or your story or whatever are too precise, especially if there's just not even if it's bad and you need to to change it because they're wrong. But even if it's perfect, it's not as exciting or engaging to just <laughs> yeah. go through and you know connect the dots or paint by numbers, as it were. I wonder if it's important to uh, review your mockups with the dev team first mm-hmm. before with the client. You know, before yeah, you sense. sell them on it, kind of, you know, like, yeah. is this going to be actually possible? Guys? We used to, yeah, I used know. to have meetings with, uh, you know, with the designers before it would kind of go up the chain, right? Yeah. Um, in a larger application, because we were, we kind of experienced a lot of that, like, you know, they thought that this feature that was in this mockup was like for free, basically, that it came with the mockup, right? right. Yeah. It's like, oh right. yeah, this cool, like filter that's literally going to take weeks to build it's right. just going to magically show up because the designer put right. html in it right yeah. and so the uh so yeah we we kind of headed that off at some point just to be like okay well we really need to talk like you know and make sure to x out these things that we huh. don't think are here or at least call them out with like you know special highlighting and be like these yeah. are this the next really version hard. or yeah. whatever mm-hmm. you know it's like this is not what's going to be here next week but it'll be maybe next month yeah yeah that cool. sounds kind of like the classic tension between product company sales and engineering like the mm-hmm. salespeople go out and sell a hypothetical and then once someone signs a check they're like okay now you guys have to make it possible and <laughs> yeah in I, this case i guess you were all on the same team and internal and it was external designer oh yeah, yeah? Mm-hmm. well oh, it's well. also the tension between client preferences and technical realities yeah true too. like yeah. i'd rather you do this instead of that but this one costs 10 times as much so maybe i don't want it that much right yeah, and the designers they're looking out for kind of like the vision of what they're going to do right mm-hmm. they're not looking for what it lo- what it's going to look like tomorrow they want to know like what should this page really look like if i was kind of you know doing it myself and like yeah. so having these like roll-ups or like little reports or widgets or whatever that show all this really important data it can be awesome and but they're really selling new features that they're not going to deliver and so right. you've got to yeah like I said, it's a tension there but you've got to manage it well i think that's a good place for us to wrap up this week thanks for coming guys yeah i hope we helped in some way yep yeah good time good and if you're listening and you'd like to reach out to us you can find us on twitter at clear function or hashtag it depends thanks and we'll see you next time see you Listening to It Depends, a podcast by Clear Function. Clear Function is a group of happy engineers based in Memphis, Tennessee. We partner with visionaries to bring their ideas to life. For more information, check out our website at clearfunction.com.